electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. You know, and, and I think those are not the jobs we necessarily want. And I think that, like you, we're, I'm fine if those become automated, if they move into a different direction. And I think that, um, I think that we, as a society, do better with higher, um, higher compensated positions. Who doesn't like to eat? Maybe my seven-year-old, he'd rather talk at the table. But the rest of us, when we're hungry, want something right now, and preferably something that's not going to induce a lot of guilt. That, in a nutshell, is what has given birth to the fast casual movement over the past 20-plus years. And this week, I want you to join me for my conversation with the father of fast casual, Ron Shake. Before there was Chipotle or Dig In, there was Panera Bread. Founded in Missouri in 1987, it now boasts more than 2,000 locations. But Shake, one of the founders, was selling cookies when he first got into the restaurant business, and he's got some insights to share about the journey. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Subscribe, and every episode will come to you. I got some time with Ron Shake to talk technology and quality and wages and more. We had half of this conversation on Fort Knox Live, which you can catch Wednesdays at 2 p.m. and see, by the way, on YouTube and the CNBC apps on Apple TV and Amazon Fire TV. Also, Ron and I kept the conversation going exclusively for this podcast, so there are parts that are new here, even if you watched live. Here's Ron Shake. I want to cover with you, but I Let's want to it, start John. off yes. as a Panera customer. Yeah. The Panera app yes. is really something special because so many places I go, I'm frustrated. You know, you go to the counter, they, they might not have Apple Pay. You certainly can't order in store from the app. But at Panera, when I go with my wife and kids, we can sit down at our table, order on the app, put in our table number, pay on the phone, and have our food brought to us. This is not something that happened overnight. How did you guys decide? Half a decade is we've been working on it. And here's the point. Technology doesn't matter in, in its own right. Technology only matters if it makes a difference in the guest experience. So we started with the guest experience and backward engineered technology to support that, not the other way around. You know, I can remember I've been working on it for, I and Blaine Hurst, our CEO, among others, have been working on it for, for half a decade or more. Mm. And I can remember when we first started and, and the prevailing thought in the food industry is everybody needed a mobile app. And I can remember doing some research. I was in Houston. I, I placed a mobile order. I walked into the restaurant. I was asked to stand in the same line I would have stood in. <laughs> and I got to the front and the manager looked at me and said, oh, you're here. I'll, I'll, um, I'll make your food now. And I thought to myself, why in the world did I place a mobile app? How did it help me? What it was was some CEO said, we need a mobile app, an IT department that supported it. 
and it didn't come from solving a customer problem. Mm -hmm. And the key to why digital has been so powerful for Panera, as I think you know, we're now 30% digital. 30%, last um, number I saw was in the 20s, so yeah, I was gonna ask yeah, you for an 30 update. 30% digital. And that um, means what exactly? That means either in-store or ordering for delivery or whatever, they're either orders coming in digital, coming in digital, okay. coming in digitally. Uh, we'll be, we'll do an excess of $1.25 billion digitally this year. Mm. And it's because digital helps the guest. If it doesn't help the guest, it doesn't work. And we took the longer path of transformation. We didn't deal with a single app. Others dealt with simply a payment app. We dealt with an integrated system that provided a solution to a better way to interact with Panera when you came to visit. So if you were placing an order to go, our app enabled you to place that order, have the food made simultaneously with your trip to the store, walk in and have your food pre-checked and ready to go as you wanted it. We call it rapid pickup. Alternatively, we dealt with in-store. You described it at the, at the lead into the show, where you can literally walk in, sit at a table, use the app, place an order. We decided we would deliver the food to you. It would be brought to you and your food was present. And if you want to eat in, you can walk in, hit a kiosk. The kiosk knows your favorites. You hit a couple of buttons, you sit down, and you have your food delivered to you. Now, does that count as digital if somebody goes to a screen in the store and orders that way? Yes, it, it counts as digital is anything that doesn't go in over a register or over a phone, anything that comes in electronically. A lot of people who know you might not know you're not the CEO anymore. You referenced that a few moments ago. Uh, as of the beginning of the year, you stepped into the chairman role. Also, Panera is now under JAB, right. uh, a, a, a part of a private uh, holding now. What's the difference in Panera now? versus Panera before? Well, let, let me step back and share with you why I, I made the decision um, to sell it to JB and, and what I think is going on in the world. Panera has been the most successful restaurant stock of the last two decades, of the last 20 years. It's delivered uh, returns to its shareholders through July uh, when we ended our run as a public company, uh, north of 25%. Uh, better than Starbucks, better than McDonald's. 25% a year. 25% annual returns. Over how many years? Over two decades. We beat this, uh, the S&P 500 during that period of time. Sounds like you beat it to a pulp. 40-fold. <laughs> right? And yeah. in fact, somebody told me we actually beat Warren Buffett's uh, Berkshire Hathaway. So we had a great run. And the reality is I ran that public company for 26 years. I ran the company for 36. I founded it. Mm -hmm. And the key to our success is essentially every five to six years, we would make a long-term transformation. Started when we really started as a cookie store and a croissant shop. We became a French bakery cafe. From there, uh, we made the, uh, the decision to um, evolve and grow. We- St. Uh, Louis Bread Company? Well, we get there. 93, okay. <laughs> second transformation was to recognize that we needed to diversify and bought a 19-store chain in St. Louis called St. Louis Bread Company. Third one was the recognition that people wanted more than a lot of food for a cheap price and that there was an opportunity, a, a niche at that point, for what has now become fast casual. People wanted real food, served in environments that engaged them by people that cared. That led us to redefine St. Louis Bread Company, became Panera. It was a very different thing. That was the first forerunner of what's now Fast Casual, which is a $40 billion segment. Yeah. And then in 99, again, another transformation. It was very clear to me Panera had the potential to be a nationally dominant brand, but it, but it wasn't going to get there 
as a division, as one of four divisions in a, in a public restaurant company, I made the decision to, to essentially sell all our other assets and monetize them and make the bet on Panera. Most and notably that the company with the French sounding name, right? We sold right. Au Bon Pen, we sold Au Bon Pen International, Au Bon Pen Manufacturing, I'll come around. Okay. In the, in the mid zeros, when, when everybody was, was basically simply, you know, leveraging up their balance sheets, buying in stock, we harbored resources when the recession hit, knowing there would be a recession, we still had a very strong brand. We invested into the guest experience. We essentially increased labor in our stores. We increased our development rate, saw our comp store sales go mid-single digit, and we tripled the stock price. And I'm guessing you're telling me that the public markets would not let you do that kind of a bet today. Well, I go to the last one. I retired uh, for the first time in 2009. In 2010, I could already begin to see some of the pressures Panera was experiencing. I wrote a memo how I would compete with Panera if I weren't part of Panera. And uh, the then CEO, good friend of mine named Bill Morton, asked me if I'd come back and work on it. He had some issues, couldn't travel. I ended up becoming the CEO again, and that was the sixth transformation. The point of the whole story is Panera's story is a, st is a story of long-term transformation. And at any given point along the way, people would challenge me. When we were in the middle of, of making the bet on Panera, you could have bought our stock for $4 a share. It ultimately traded for $3.15 when we sold it. Right? When at $4 a share, you could have bought wheelbarrows of it for years. People say to me all the time, Ron, why didn't you tell me? The truth is I was telling you, nobody <laughs> wanted to listen. And the reality is nothing is proven until it's done and things of value take time to, to be created. And so the Panera story is the story of these bets and these transformations. And the reality, having run a public company 26 years, I can tell you, 26 years ago, the average shareholder held for four years. Today it's four months. Wow. Increasingly, we have entered into a short-term world. Mm -hmm. And we've entered into a world where you have index funds that are, that are essentially not willing to make decisions. They're outsourcing governance issues to ISS and Glass-Lewis, which are rule-based. And you increasingly, with all of this pervasive short-termism, do not have the capabilities in the public markets to the same degree you once did to make long-term transformation. And, you know, when I first went public, the prevailing model was the long-term money was in the public markets. Today, I'm going to tell you, long-term money is in the private markets, not necessarily private equity, which is three to seven years, right. but really um, long-term evergreen money. JEB, wasn't, company wasn't for sale. We were humming. We had a phenomenal year last year. Comps were 6%, one of our best years in our history. Uh, JB um, came to us. We began to meet him. I profoundly respected these guys. Very long-term investors. Um, they invest for decades, and you know they've had certain investments that have gone multiple decades. They're not interested in a terminal point. They're interested in using the cash flow of the businesses to continue to grow them. Uh, they're a holding company model. They're not trying to manage the companies from their holding company. Mm -hmm. They're quality people. And I believe long-term competitive advantage today is the ability to make long-term transformation. You know, in the market, we talk about the FANG stocks, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Google. Right. Do you know what they all have in, in common? They have a capital structure or a, a relationship with the market where they're able to make long-term bets. Yeah. And that's what has been Panera's greatest competitive advantage. And understanding that I'm 64, I won't be with it forever. I voted 17% in the stock, but I, I won't be able to. Even with our track record, we had activists twice 
I don't think that's necessarily productive, this sort of short-term focus on, 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 on uh, is, is, is helpful to long-term transformation and the kind of success that Panera built. And I worry deeply that Panera was going to be able to continue to do that right. forever. I want to get back yes. to some of those market issues, but I also want to touch on a few other things. This is Fort Knox. I am live with Ron Shake, the founder of Panera, uh, now part of JAB. You're advising them on some of their other holdings, which include, I mean, it's quite an interesting list. Krispy Kreme, I, I believe, Stumptown Coffee Roasters, Pete's Coffee, Keurig, a lot of coffee in there, yeah. coffee and bagels. Intelligentsia. Yeah. Um, and we are live on Twitter, Facebook, YouTube, Apple TV, Amazon, and this is also the Fort Knox podcast. So I want to talk to you about a long-term bet on workers. Since there have been these tax law changes, a number of companies have been announcing these $1,000 bonuses. Some have been announcing increases in wages or shifts in benefits. What's your take on what's really holding down the American workers' wages? Because the markets have been roaring. Unemployment, at least the number, how it's got, has been low. But wages have not been rising the way people have expected. I think you've seen the food industry. Uh, wages are rising. And I think you see it occurring structurally. I mean, mm -hmm. we have seen uh, wage increases, and don't quote me on, on, on the specificity of it, but in mid-single digits over the last uh, four to five years. Uh, it's occurred both because of market conditions, and it's also occurred because um, folks like me have supported an increased minimum wage. It's the right thing to do for the society. It's the right thing to do, um, uh, you know, as, as a country. And, and you've seen that have its impact across the country. Now, you supported a federal minimum wage I did. increase. Yes. But said, hey, it's got to be everybody doing it. That's exactly what I did. You know, yeah. Panera can't unilaterally say we're going to pay people. Here's what I Well, we have always do. paid more. Okay. Right. As, as a matter of fact, we have tended to pay above what others are paying. But the, but the nature of what wages are, are driven by the competitive environment. Mm -hmm. And so I support a level pay, playing field in which, raise, in which wages are, are, are raised um, because it's the right thing to do in the society. When uh, I have conversations yes. about the minimum wage yes. with people, the, the argument is often hey, if, if we raise the minimum wage or if, you know, Restaurant X is forced to pay employees more, well, then, you know, the busboys will have to go away. They'll have to get rid of these. My feeling is I'm okay with that. Yeah. If really good workers are getting paid more, if there are fewer workers, fine. Let entrepreneurs start new companies and pay those workers more, too, if they're good. Should I care if really low-level jobs that the workers usually don't like that much anyway are getting cut, but the workers who really care are getting paid more? John, I'm with you. I think it's a question of our, our, our society and our own personal morality. I, I, I think it's just deeply um, problematic when you have individuals who are working full-time, um, unable to live above the poverty line, unable to have med med uh, medical care, unable to, to, to live a life and live the American dream. It's wrong, you know? And, and I think those are not the jobs we necessarily want. And I think that, like you, we're I'm fine if those become automated, if they move into a different direction. And I think that um, I think that we, as a society, do better with higher, um, higher compensated positions. So paint, paint me a picture, especially in a world where we've got 
wanna, You're I'm on your phone. You. How can I paint I you a picture? Because I'm pulling up the Panera right. app. That's oh, why I'm on okay. my phone. I want to show you that yeah. I really do have the Panera you do. app here. Now, yeah. are, now, let me ask you a question. Yes. Are you a member of the rewards program? And I can check. I, I believe I am. Let me see. Let me tap rewards there. Uh, see? John, you're in. Yeah? Yeah, absolutely. I'm 30 legit. million Americans are members <laughs> of the Panera Reward program. Now, I, I even have a regular order that I can tap in here. But yes. in a world where we have these, which yes. arguably makes the cashier a less essential role within a store, paint a vision of... How does an innovative entrepreneur get there to where that the, the workers, the human workers do have higher value, are perhaps being paid more, enjoy their work more in a store? Well, I think here was the judgment we made. And very, very simply, we, we um, have probably the highest digital rate of any restaurant company in America at this rate pushing 30%. Um, Aside from maybe the pizza guys. Yes, aside from the pizza guys, they're running 50%, but they're using it essentially as their ordering device coming in in place of the phones. Yeah. All right, so very high digital rates. Um, what we felt is that our, our, some of our existing employees, our cashiers, were just extensions of the cash register. And just imagine, you know, you walk in, you go to place an order, it's got to go from your brain through your mouth into somebody else's ears, through their brain, into their fingers. It's not a very efficient system. And what we did is we actually introduced digital, we introduced kiosks, and despite all those folks that said what we were doing was doing it to cut the labor, our labor went up. We actually took Why? it because we took that labor and we then put it into production in the kitchen. We put it into higher value, greater, uh, to, into higher value um, work that actually delivered a better experience to the guest, delivering it to the table. Mm. And so our labor costs went up at the same time that we were introducing all this technology because we transferred labor from low productivity, low value added, low warmth endeavors, like taking an order into much higher warmth, like actually relating to you and bringing you your food. So what are the metrics that you watch to gauge the success of that tech transformation? Is it in loyalty? return visits, it's, the, the size of the ticket. Loyalty, return visits, and size of the ticket. How do you know all this, John? You're doing <laughs> your homework here. You've been inside our organization. These are the core things, I buddy. Business. I like to pay attention. You're doing good. All right, thanks. Those are the key things. And if it doesn't, here's my point, the way we started. reordering, I didn't used to reorder. It was like, I, I went to the cash register, I stood there, you know, dealt with the kids wanting to sit. I sat down, hey, what you get is what you get. You want something else, maybe we'll grab a cookie on the way out the door, but it depends right. if you're good. But when I and got we couldn't app, customize very easily. Yeah, when I got the app, it's like, oh, you, you want a little extra of that? Oh, I forgot this, I'll just order it right now right. and somebody will bring it to the table. Right. I know my ticket. The problem company. I have is my daughter, who knows her favorites, knows her app, three buttons and she's uh, already made the commitment for me on my credit card and we're at the Panera for her smoothie. Yeah. Well, at least it's ending up in your pocket on the other end. One way or the other. 17% of it, right? Yes. Um, is this environment one where we're going to see the benefits increase for workers as well? Because the pay is one thing, but healthcare costs are difficult. And I've got another question Go that I see Where a lot of questions These about are big questions. on Glassdoor, for example. Yeah. Why is it that we've got so many workers who are part-time who want more hours, but so many companies are hiring more part-time workers? Yeah. Okay. So let's take each piece of it. Let's start with the, the part-time question. It, we have a big problem in our society. Customers show up when they want to. You know, these darn people show up between 12 and 2. That's when they want to eat. And, you know, between 4 and 5 o'clock, they don't show up with the same frequency. 
So one of the challenges in dynamic businesses that are trying to flex for the guest is how it allocates its labor. Mm. Part-time tends to work better than full-time in trying to fill in businesses that have very differentiated peaks and valleys. You don't want to pay somebody nine to five if people are coming in at nine 12 to, to 11 two and three to five. Or how, right. about, how, about four to, how about five to nine, mm. right? And so what we'll do often in, in, in our kind of business is overlap them at lunch. They'll open and go till two o'clock that will be one shift, and another shift will come in at, at, at 11, shall we say, and run till 9. Yeah. So you have to figure it out. But Can you do surge pricing for workers, where essentially in certain hours, your per hour rate is higher than at other hours, and it just, so you still end we up We actually being, do that. Yeah? We do that in, in, with different tasks. So when you're driving, you can get one rate. Um, when you're in the cafe, you get a different rate. Now, it depends on the state legislation, the, the wage and hour laws, but we try to um, actually use wages to encourage the kind of uh, presence and, and attendance that we want and when. Hmm. Right? We'd rather have, you know, I, I'd rather pay people more money, not less. Why? Because I'd rather have a, a stable workforce. I'd rather have a, a workforce that we can train. I'd rather have a workforce that's going to remain with us. I'd rather have a workforce that brings um, humanity to what they do. Hmm. And, you know, I can't tell you how many times I've gone into... To, Fast food places, right? You know, and I walk. You still up. do that? You go. I do on occasion. <laughs> my body is a temple, but my intestines have been known to, <laughs> to sometimes, uh, let's just say, see something else come through them. But but at any rate, I've, I've walked in, and you've looked at the people making the food, and you thought to yourself, boy, the choices between them making my food and nothing, they don't have gloves on. How do I feel? Mm. And and the reality is. I very much want to have people that, that, that can speak to the food, that care about the food, that know about the food. And so to me, being able to pay our people more money to give them a quality of life um, is a gift um, to our business. It's a gift to our customers. I'm seeing the comments and questions come in. That's why you see me uh, glancing sure. down the screens now. And then one question from Periscope uh, from a viewer says, I went to a kiosk at McDonald's six years ago in Brussels. Why so long to have America embrace that? I think it's a good question for Steve Estbrook, who's the <laughs> CEO of McDonald's. I, I think the issue is in large companies, the real challenge is figuring out what matters and then getting organizations to do it. Um, it's really tough. And I think McDonald's has had, as an outside observer, some of the, 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 the most important innovations um, in our industry in their uh, development cycles for many, many years. They never got out. Hmm. And I think one of the interesting questions um, about the story of McDonald's and, and generally large companies is how do they create an environment that lets them figure out what's really going to matter and get it to market? on the other end of the, uh, of the innovation spectrum. You were on the board of Whole Foods. I was, yes. What did you think when Amazon made its approach to buy out Whole Foods? Well, I was part of that. I think that, that the John Mackey, a very dear friend, an amazing entrepreneur and business builder, I think that they were under intense pressure from, um, from activists 
Um, I think that the environment had changed, that you had Walmart and Target coming into organics, you had Aldi and Little coming in, there was going to be increasing price pressure, there needed to be significant investment in technology to adjust. And I, I think with activists at the door, there wasn't the room, um, quite frankly, for them to take a long-term approach and deal <laughs> with where they'd like to have taken their prices to compete. So is this J.A.B. Panera all over again? It's J.B. Panera, well, very similarly, yeah. in the sense that we live in a world, right, where Amazon, what is Amazon doing that, that, that Whole Foods wasn't going to do? They're doing the same thing, lowering the prices to compete, and they're, and they're bringing technology to bear. But they've got air cover from but the cloud, But they have air cover. From the That's exactly business. my point. You're a good student of this. The key difference is the nature of that capital structure that gives them the room. And here's the point. The ability to do long-term transformation, which Panera got started on early and was able to do, and to push off the activists that attacked us along the way, um, was something that Whole Foods didn't have the capability of doing. Hmm. And we'll never know whether shareholders and long-term shareholders would have been better served or not in the hands of, um, of, of Whole Foods and where it was headed versus selling to Amazon. We'll never know the answer to it. Um, but you seem to but, have a pretty good... Well, I think yes. that, that clearly what ended up happening is that ham was pushed by the fact that activists were involved and there wasn't the room to find out the answer to that question. Amazon goes stores. You like the idea? Um, I think it's going to be fascinating. I think it's going to make a huge difference in the world. I think it's going to change retail. I think we all know um, that retail is going to increasingly move into simply a way to move product uh, with lower and lower labor component or into an experience. And, um, you know, we think for folks like Panera, it's very good because we're moving increasingly towards an experience-based um, retail concept and away from simply a commodity. Uh, at least in the beginning, they're not going to do things like take food stamps, right? I don't know that, but well, I'll they take don't. you. They oh, don't. Okay. In the beginning, at least in this, yeah. in this beta test, what happens in all of this technology transformation to the least of these, to uh, the folks who don't have access perhaps to the latest technology or to credit cards, to the things that make the new conveniences convenient? Yeah, I don't think you need me to answer that. I think you've answered that already. I think the reality is if, you, if, you, if the world changes and you can't um, be present in that changing world, you lose. I mean, that is a fundamental question, and I think one of the issues we as a society got to keep, we have to keep asking, is how we feel about that and what matters in our society and what doesn't. You did this Panera Cares experiment that you still got going, I believe, is it five locations? Six? We opened five. We have one of them operating right now. One operating well, we've right served, now. We've served, we served two. Oh, it's been great. We served. Um, then why aren't there more? I mean, uh, it seems like well, there must have been. No, no, no. Here's the deal. Okay. So we opened our first one seven years ago. These are cafes in which we had no set prices. Mm -hmm. You came in and you put what you, uh, you, 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 you knew what the value was, and you put what you could afford into the, into the donation bin. Some people paid more, some less. The reality is people, on average, over millions of meals, left 85 cents on the dollar. And this worked fine while, the, while we were in the stores that we were in. When we ended up running up against a lease that was ending and rents were going up significantly, or we had been in this store and it needed significant capital investment, that's a time that it was time to, to pull out. And I, I would say to you, for me personally, I, I thought it was so powerfully, I did it myself. 
And I, I thought it was so personally gratifying. I found it fascinating. It was a study in humanity. And the reality is most people are fundamentally good. You know, and most did you people, come away from I did. It I that? absolutely did. And you'd be amazed. You'd see people walk in, you thought they had nothing. You'd make that judgment in your mind, and they would leave 20 bucks in the donation bin. And you'd see some, somebody come in and say, oh, I'll have two smoothies, and by the way, put this on my, my dad's credit card. Give me two bucks. Put down two bucks on it. And you just want to grab them across the, uh, you know, gr jump across the counter and go, hey, buddy, what are you doing here? Is that really how you want to live your life? You know, and, but the reality is, on some, people do the right thing. I think that one of the things that I personally came to conclude is we served in those cafes over millions of meals, some people very intensely. So there were many people who became regulars there and we were really able to help them. I also think that, that we ultimately concluded for our foundation, um, we're better able to help um, more people more broadly by donating to organizations like Feeding America than we are simply running this cafe. But anybody who said it didn't work, you know, is, doesn't, didn't, know the, uh, didn't know or doesn't understand the data. One of the first guests on the Fort Knox podcast, Diana Aviv of Feeding America, so the longtime listeners will be familiar with that organization and the work that it does. What are you doing advising at JAB? I mean... Yeah, you know, JAB tends not to talk very publicly uh, about their activities, their okay. holding company. So we, it's, it's basically inappropriate for me to comment on JAB. So you or, can't tell me, like, the, the future of the Krispy Kreme donut? I can't tell you the future of the Krispy Kreme donut. I can't tell you whether they're going to buy this or that. That's, those are questions that are going to have to remain for the doing. How have you managed to have all this growth in momentum selling carbs in an environment where it seems like the culture has turned against carbs? Well, let's go back to Atkins. That was the height of the anti-carb movement, that right? That was crazy. And, you know, I never did that. You never did. Good for you. But, but you know, uh, uh, well, let me comment in general, and I'll tell you the Atkins story. So the reality is there, they, you know, it's like everything else. People have come to understand, right, there are good carbs and bad carbs. You want whole grains. You don't want carbs with, with, with no nutritional value, processed carbs. There's good fats and bad fats. You don't want saturated fats. You want polyunsaturated fat. There, there's, there's good proteins and bad proteins. Mm -hmm. and, and so people, I think, understand that. During the years of Atkins, um, I, I, I would say it brought down our comp slightly, but people, I would walk into a cafe and I'd be all worried it's Atkins and people would be saying to me on the street on, on CNBC, you know, why don't you take Panera, why don't you take bread out of your name? And, you know, and, and I'd walk into the cafe and that's where I learned most things and I'd walk up to a customer and say, what are you doing here? It's the middle you know, of the Atkins. They said, oh no, I came here, I love your salads. And consumers understood they could eat around how they wanted to eat within a Panera. We've offered lots of optionality. And um, so I think that for us, the whole anti-carb movement really didn't amount to a hill of beans. Our conversation continues. Ron and I talk immigration, whether he's got a future in politics, and his tips for business growth. This is Fort Knox. I'm John Fort, and I'm here with Ron Sheikh, the founder of Panera. We're continuing our conversation on Panera, the future of food, technology, the economy, worker wages, all that good stuff. I, I want to talk about immigration because sure. a lot of what's happening with the workforce, what's happening with the economy, what's happening in our culture is entwined with immigration. I, I read a book a few years ago called The Next 100 Years mm -hmm. that I think is really interesting. It, it makes an argument about what 
the world is going to be like geopolitically and economically 100 years from now, the different stresses in different countries. And one of the arguments that it makes is that the United States is going to be desperate for immigrants, for young, working people because yes. of the aging of our population. Just look at Japan. It's the example. I mean, but what about automation and computers? Is it going to do away with the need for young, working people? I think that there is always the need for folks that want to believe in the American dream, that want to start at the bottom with the very toughest of jobs, generally the most physical, and move up. And I think one of the really interesting questions uh, from my position is, one, how do we maintain border security, but simultaneously, how do we encourage the kind of immigration that has fueled the, uh, the American success story? We're all immigrants, every one of us. So how do we? I think those are very tough questions, <laughs> and I don't think we're going to resolve. But you made a career thinking about tough questions. Yes. Have you thought about this one? Yeah, you know, I think, you know, one of the real problems we have is we all come with solutions and without discussion. And one of the things that was most encouraging to me, well, let me start here. What was most discouraging to me over the budget uh, uh collapse, the, you know, the three days when the government wasn't being funded, mm -hmm. was the degree to which all that our major political parties wanted to do was blame each other. And the reality is that the only interest in Washington that isn't represented today isn't organized. The only one that isn't a special interest is the common good. And a budget shutdown was good for nobody. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that what we need um, are not the answers, is if I have the answer and I'm right and all you have to do is listen to me or you have the answer, but we need to sit down and we need to talk about it and we need to discuss it. And I'm so deeply respectful of Susan Collins and Joe Manchin and the legislators who got together up in Susan Collins' office and they sat there and they really tried to talk about how do we move this thing forward. Mm. And we need that spirit. We need the spirit of, 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 of coming together as Americans around a, a national plan. The reality is we're competing with the Chinese who have 20-year plans and we can't hold a budget together for three days. How do you win? The very same things I'm talking about in the capital markets, this pervasive short-termism, this interest in, 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 in making the other guy look bad at the expense of even solving the problem, is exactly what's happening in the national debate and in the national political debate. And unless we're committed to solving problems in a, in a, in a, in a, in a colloquial way, in a, in a, in a worry in which we're, we're working together, and real strategic solutions, understanding what matters and what, what doesn't, and working on that together, uh, we're never going to be who we want to be. At the beginning of your career, after you left college, you were torn between going into business and going into politics. You say yes. like you felt like the political guy in business and you felt like the business guy in politics, depending on which job yeah. you were in. Running so, a business is a small society. So are you going to go into politics? You know, I'm, I'm, I've got a long life ahead of me. Um, I, you know, I've got uh, resources. I've got, my mind is continuing to work. I want to continue to make a difference. Mm -hmm. And the uh, last time I stepped down from the CEO role, I was part of something called No Labels, uh, one of the co-founders there. 
uh, helping to reduce the hyperpartisanship in DC. Maybe, yeah, well, maybe that know. didn't work so well. <laughs> maybe you need to go but, more but, but all interesting, in if Susan, you're gonna... Susan Collins and Joe Manchin both came out of the sort of no labels movement. Uh -huh. And I think we were part of that spirit of trying to drive this communication. At any rate, um, I'm interested in helping solve problems. I don't know that that necessarily means running for office, but I'm really interested in helping give voice as a highly successful CEO of 26 years, longer than Cal Ripken, play baseball. <laughs> I'm interested in talking about how the, our capital markets have changed, how much like our national debate has gotten much more short term, our capital markets have gotten much more short term. There's many reasons for it. This isn't good, it's bad. It, it, it drives the only kind of innovation we end up with um, is in, in our biggest public companies is cost cutting, which ultimately is probably more impactful on GDP growth uh, to the negative than even tax policy changes um, will be in the long run. I asked the same question to Visa CEO Al Kelly, yes. um, who had said in the past, absolutely not to politics. Now he's saying, who knows, I might change my mind one day, but right now, and for the foreseeable future, I'm running Visa. And he cited, you know, the stress on the family, all of yeah. the partisan rancor in politics as reasons why not. But he's not counting it out. I hear you not counting it out. Are those all the same reasons why you would hesitate? I have one simple reason. The sense that I really feel like I can make a difference. Right? What, what I'm about, you know, what I love is figuring things out. What I love is feeling like through my energy and effort, and I've got a lot of energy and effort, <laughs> I actually added some real value. And uh, you know, the objective to me, I've seen both my, uh, be very philosophical with you, I've seen both my mom and dad pass away. And in doing that, I've, I've noticed there's a judgment day. And most of us, if we have a chronic illness, have a judgment day. And that judgment day, for most people, tends to occur at the end of their life. I believe the right time to do it is not in the ninth inning, but as you're living your life. And really what, what I care about is doing the things in relationship to my family, my work, um, my community that, that, that I think um, that I ultimately respect. And I think that has led to a good life up to now and it will lead to a good life for the remainder of my time on this earth. Well said. I want to ask you about some competitors because uh, I think there are some brands that people might associate more closely to the likes of a Panera and some yes. not necessarily. Starbucks. Yes. What do you think of Starbucks? Uh, you know, I, I have a long relationship with Howard. We go back decades, uh, 25 years. I have great respect for what they've done. I mean, they have done an extraordinary job. They built a, 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 a great organization, great culture, continue to adjust it and innovate. And to do so at the very large scale that they're playing in is very difficult. So, you know, I respect the work at Starbucks. As a result of uh, some of the tax law changes, they announced that they're raising some worker salaries and doing some things around that. You think that's the right thing to do? And you expect similar things to happen at Panera and other JAB properties? I, I think that, that this is something that we all have to consider. And I think that the important thing is that it not turn into a, um, you know, a me too, follow everybody else kind of reactive mode. I think the important thing is how do we take the benefits of this tax decrease and turn it into um, the capability to serve the long-term interests of our, our shareholders by taking care of our associates and in making a difference in the communities in which we operate. So I think the answer is still out on that. What does that let, that tax decrease, 
let a restaurant business do that it couldn't do before? It frees up cash. I mean, you basically, basically what was going into taxes is going to turn into cash. And that cash is going to be able to be invested in a range of different things. It can be invested in, in new stores, capital investments. Uh, it can be invested in operating costs like people. The question is, where is it going to go and what's going to have lasting value? How do you figure that out? Uh, You're right. an invest for the long term type guy. Yep. We're in this technology environment where, you know, things like mobile ordering are important. There are new potential innovations on the horizon. If, what are you well, advising well, entrepreneurs well, I, I, to do when they, when they come to you and say, what do I do with extra cash? I, I think that I, I start more philosophically and I start and say, look it. You, the, name, the, the name of the game in running a company, an institution, even a, 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 a government institution is figuring out what matters. What's going to matter down the road, you know, you know um, and, and what bets you're going to make. And adult supervision in any organization is what you say no to. Uh, there's, you know, and Panera's history has been, it's been opportunity rich. And the power has been, been in saying, you know, um, you know, five years ago in our last transformation, we're going to be focused on being a better competitive alternative. We're going to be focused on finding the large runways for growth that take us from five to 10 billion. What are the key initiatives that are going to get us there? So we made the decision within being a better competitive alternative to focus on Panera 2.0, which was our digital initiative, along with fixing the operating system. Uh, we also made the decision in a very real way to focus on what we call operational integrity, um, our ability to keep up with the volumes that we were generating. Um, we made the decision to focus on things like remodels, which you'll begin to see coming out from Panera, um, a whole new environment. All of those were about initiatives that we made the bet on to be a better competitive alternative. Simultaneously, we made the bet on a number of billion-dollar-plus businesses, uh, delivery, uh, catering, large offers, offer catering, large office catering. We made the bet on something called Panera at Home. And then we also, along the way, made the bet to figure out where we could get more efficient to provide air cover as we made these investments. The point I'm trying to make is that every leader has to decide what their goal is, what their end is in mind, and then what initiatives are going to get there? And the biggest mistake leaders make is to be reactive and, 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 and being at the effect of whatever is the flavor of the month. Mm -hmm. What matters in your business and how you're going to get there? And, and I'll, I will share with you something your listeners will find very interesting. I believe deeply in understanding the difference between byproducts, ends, and means. Mm -hmm. um, I will tell you by way of a story. Byproducts, ends, and, and means. Me. So okay. I have a friend who's a type 1 diabetic. Mm -hmm. His goal in life, what he wants, is to stay alive as long as any of us who don't have type 1 diabetes. But he can't change that. So what does he focus on? He focuses on keeping his blood sugar in line. Mm -hmm. That's his end. Right? But again, that's an end. That's not something he does. So what does he do? He manages his, his diet, his intake of carbohydrates, and he manages his exercise. Those are the means. The point I would make is in thinking about an organization, the byproduct is shareholder value creation. I can't make shareholder value creation. I can't make it. So how do I do that? What's the end I have in mind? Hmm. Being a better competitive alternative. Doing something that makes all those folks on that street, or at least our target customer, walk past our competitors and come to us. But again, that's an end. So what do I focus on? I focus on things like digital, I focus on operational integrity, I focus on remodel, I focus on upgrading the food. And that's where I spend my life as a leader. 
And I think that the challenge we have often as leaders is separating our activities which are reactive, our activities which are celebratory, our activities which are communicative, from those activities that really are the things that are our lifeblood, which are these means. When we do that, we create a better competitive alternative. When we do that, shareholder value flows as a byproduct out the other end. I love backstories, and I can't end the conversation without getting more into yours. You said when you were a long-haired college student. Back you... when I had hair. <laughs> did you ever have hair, John? I did. Uh, uh, it was longer ago than college. Uh -huh. um, I, I started shaving it before the hairline started its backward march. Got it. Um, but uh, you started a convenience store, was it? I did, yes. At, at and discovered Clark University. that that was your at least at the time, highest form of creativity yeah. was business. Well, well, here's what I found. You know, I grew up in a world, I grew up in the, the 60s, and, and you know, I, I don't believe when I was growing up, you know, business was something I profoundly respected. They, it was a different world. And one of the things that I had the, the, the gift to discover, the blessing, um, I was treasurer of the student body in college, and there was essentially nobody you know, there was a convenience store around the corner that, that had tossed a bunch of us out supposedly for, for shoplifting. We didn't do it. And we came back to campus and said, let's open our own nonprofit convenience store. And I'm this kind of guy, if I say I'm going to do it, I want to go do it. Uh -huh. And we, I was the treasurer of the student body. I, we, we had a little tax on the student body. We raised the money. and There was nobody to run it. And I decided to spend the summer building this store. And then there was like nobody literally building, literally a building store. with a, a, a carpenter. We built it. We, we bought um, the, the store fixtures out of a bankrupt department store called Den Homes. We brought it. And, um, and there was nobody to run the store when it opened in September, so I decided I'd run it. For a kid who couldn't dance, a kid who couldn't sing, this was the most creative thing I ever experienced in my life. And I loved it. Did and you I, do well at it? Were you good at it? Well, we had this problem. We started making money. This is not a problem. So we kept lowering the price. We kept making more money. At the end of the year, my idea was to basically throw a great, Grateful Dead concert on the, on the campus green for students. But unfortunately, the money ended up in the uh, scholarship fund. <laughs> it's the way it goes. So that led you, I guess, to this ambivalence around whether you become a business person or you change the world. And I guess you decided you could blend no, no, the no, two. No, 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 wait, no, no, no. I, I actually would argue that in business, we have changed the world. That's what I said. I in guess you figured way. out that you could blend the two. Well, and the, you could change the world by being a business person. Yeah, here's the message. And it goes to all young people that are, that are focused on, you know, choosing the right path. I get them coming to me, you know, tens of times a week. You know, tell me how to, how to choose the right path. There is no right path. The question is really um, uh, listening to yourself, figuring out what matters to you. And I, uh, I find that for most people, there are many paths to the same place. Your first steps in business, a yeah. cookie shop yes. in Boston. True. That ends up merging with another business? Au Bon Pen, a three-store French bakery cafe. How does a cookie shop end up merging with a French bakery? I was there. I, I, um, I had 50,000 people a day going by. Nobody bought cookies before 12 noon. I decided to become a licensee of theirs. I put in their French baked goods as a licensee. I, I knew which of my vendors were any good. 
this license, this uh, supplier to me, Old Bonpen, was the most screwed up vendor I ever dealt with. Sometimes they delivered, sometimes they didn't. Sometimes they billed me, sometimes they didn't. To this day, I'm sure I still owe them money. They were out of control. And I thought to myself, this is a powerful opportunity what I had to apply what I'd learned in the cookie business to the French bakery business. What and did you learn in the cookie business? Well, I had been in the cookie business for some time, uh -huh. and I knew how to run a store, I knew how to deal with people, I knew how to create uh, an environment I wanted to be in. And what was your so, innovation in the cookie business? Because, I mean, you must have been pretty good at it if, uh, if you ended up merging with Aubin Pen and then well, creating bon, a foundation no, 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 for what became... Aubin Pen at that time was three stores, right. and it was essentially bankrupt. It couldn't pay its bills. Uh -huh. And they and basically they, 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 they could have sold it, but the assets were worth less than the liabilities. I had this one cookie store. I went to him and said, listen, give me and give me sixty percent of the company. Um, you'll keep forty percent, but we'll take your three million dollars in debt and I'm willing to bet I'm a good enough operator, we can pay back that money. Now you must have been good at making and selling cookies if you were willing to take on three million dollars in debt and have the confidence that you could dig your way out of it. I knew, it wasn't I knew how to sell cookies. It was that I knew how to treat people right. And I honestly knew that we took care of our guests. The best way to do that was to take care of our people, separate the good people from the bad people, get rid of the people that didn't care, take care of the good people in a way they hadn't been taken care of before, um, that it would lead to good things. And as my dad, I'll never forget when I wanted to do this, I went to my dad, who was a CPA. And he said to me, Ron, if it's worth having, you're not going to get any of it. If you get any of it, it's not going to be worth having. <laughs> In the end, uh, I did get much of it, and it worked out to, to really become my life's work. That cookie store led to Au Bon Pen. Au Bon Pen um, quickly evolved to becoming a French bakery cafe. I used to have customers walk in and say, I want that baguette. I'd say, sure. They'd say, slice it. And I'd slice it the way you slice a baguette. Um, like this, they'd say, no, slice it through the middle. I'd slice it through the middle. I'd hand them the loaf of bread. They'd pull out a bag from Stop and Shop, and they'd throw luncheon meats on it. And you didn't need a Harvard MBA, which I had, but you didn't need a Harvard MBA or to be a marketing whiz to understand that people wanted the bread not as the product, but as a means to sell sandwiches. From there, it, it, it ultimately, um, we ultimately opened a French bakery cafe in, in, in Copley Place in Boston and then in Harvard Square. It took off. This broken down little bankrupt business was flying. Everybody wanted to be in the bakery cafe business. We had Sarah Lee come after us, small company called Pepsi, another company called Vita France. By 1991, we had bested all these guys. All of them were promising more growth. They were going to do more things, but our people cared more. We were more centered. Uh, by 1991, we had the highest average unit volumes. We had the highest margins. And 1991, it went public. That is this company that we sold this summer. What's the secret between, you've, you've talked about this, I'm going to forget the terms. They're kind of the, the creatives and the distributors. And at the beginning stage of a business, it's driven by the creatives. And then eventually, they bring in the distributors and to grow you're, the you're business. Very eventually, good. the, the so, distribution is all people are thinking about. So here's what, here's what I see happens in so many different companies, particularly in creative businesses and particularly the food industry. When the business starts off, it requires tremendous momentum to get off the ground. Somebody has to discover something that's really better to get somebody to walk across the street. They don't have scale, they don't have economics, they don't have resources. It's gotta be damn good. And it's a leap of faith. It's a, I wanna do this. It's a, imagine if we did that, let's go do it. And once a business takes off and it actually works, 
it starts to attract capital and it starts to attract other people, other constituencies. And people say, we love what we're doing, but how do we make this more rational? How do we make this more efficient? And behind this discovery person comes what I call the delivery people. And, and the delivery processes really take form and they begin to work. And, and they really help. And the business gets more stable, it gets more efficient, um, it gets more programmed. The problem is the languages of discovery and delivery are very different. The language of delivery is the language of prove it to me. It's the language of numbers. It's the language of accounting. The language of discovery is the language, language of what could be. It's the language of poetry. It's the language of imagine. And these things come into conflict. And frankly, because delivery is working, over the course of a decade or two, you find that discovery doesn't feel at home and it starts to flee because it doesn't know how to defend imagine. It doesn't know how to defend the idea of let's take this opportunity. I can feel it. And it's nothing is proven until it is. And ultimately in so many organizations you have delivery, that delivery muscle that gets stronger and stronger and that discovery muscle um, starts to wither. And ultimately you wake up in these, these creative entrepreneurial businesses 20 or 30 years later and they have tremendous scale they have lots of efficiency and they're not very effective and they don't have the ability very easily to adopt and adjust to their guests. And so I've always said my role, my most fundamental role of a CEO in now a $6 billion system is to really support and serve discovery, to protect discovery and to, dis and to protect innovation while um, uh, ensure, and ensure that, that, that delivery, which is necessary in a large organization, doesn't overwhelm it and actually destroy it. Well, I love that. I think that's not just a message for individual businesses, but for individuals. I think in our careers, we can get overly focused yeah. on delivery and under-focused on discovery. I think institutions of higher education these days are being tempted to focus on delivery and under-emphasize discovery. So uh, thanks for sharing. Well, John, in a very personal way, that's why um, I personally stepped down as CEO. I could continue doing this with extraordinary success. I've done it for a very long time. But I wanted another opportunity for creativity. I wanted another opportunity to re-engage and discover new ways to help make a difference. Ron Shake, founder of Panera, former convenience store operator, <laughs> and Boston cookie baron. Thank you so thank much you. for sitting down with CNBC for four And let me tell you, I enjoyed this immensely. You're very good. Oh, thank you. I hope we'll have you back soon. Thank you. My thanks to Ron Shake. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and this has been Fort Knox, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Please do leave a review if you enjoyed this. Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X dot com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook and Twitter. There you'll see video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube and search for Fort Knox. or go to Facebook and search for John Fort. You can do the same on Periscope. YouTube, download the CNBC app. We are all over the place. Meanwhile, share this. Tell a friend. Drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, 
packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. 